the get up, get out, and do something virtual voter rally was designed to encourage people to vote in the 2020 general election. We have seen the statistics of voter turnout from past elections, and we also have heard about the unjust obstacles being created to discourage and prevent underrepresented communities and populations from voting. Even with the aforementioned, we know and still believe in the power of the vote. And that's why it is imperative that we unite and encourage everyone to march to the polls. It is no longer just our right, it is now our obligation. Join us as we are joined by our guests to get up, get out, and do something during this virtual voter rally, which originally aired on October 24th, 2020. In my role at NACD, I also am director of advocacy. I focus mainly on state level criminal justice reform. Um, and it's a topic that's gained a lot of attention, I want to say, in the, in the last couple of years. It's been very bipartisan in terms of um, both parties seeing ways that we can kind of reform our criminal justice system in a more progressive way. And so making it, releasing people, making sure that people don't need to be detained pre-trial, they don't need to be there, you know, really assessing the role of cash bail in our pre-trial detention system, just to name a few. Um, and so I am, I am lucky, lucky to be able to kind of do that on my day-to-day -day job. And so um, at NACDL, we have, you know, we have, we are the national organization, but we have state affiliates. So we have the state equivalent, equivalent to NACDL. Um, and in Virginia, where I live, we have the Virginia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And I say that because we work closely with our state affiliates. And so in terms of prioritizing what policies they're working on, um, we'll work with them. We'll find out what priorities will be, um, will come up in their state because every state, you know, is, is different. Um, you know, New York has done a lot on bail and discovery reform, but other states may be looking at other different topics. And so we'll work with them on their um, priorities for their sessions. Um, but really just kind of on the ground work. I mean, this work in the legislature and so working with elected officials, but also working with just members of the community and really doing that grassroots work and really trying to show why these reforms are needed. Um, in certain communities, I, you know, and, and with certain topics, some people are more pop, you know, cer certain topics are more popular. And so you hear a lot about decrim around marijuana and legalization. Um, you hear sentencing reforms, but there's some issues that just require a little more education of the public and elected officials. And so doing that kind of legwork um, is what I get to manage at NACDL. So I guess we'll go into depth in terms of like what, how the election will impact criminal justice reform, but that's a high level kind of overview of what I get to do in my day-to-day -day job. Let's actually start with that question. <laughs> <laughs> How will the election impact the work that you do with the organizations that you're involved in? Um, gosh, I mean, it's, there's a lot of parts to that question. I mean, obviously we are looking at, you know, the main focus is the presidential election. Um, and there's definitely, and, I, and in, that, in that question, I do want to talk, talk about some of the down ballot, down ballot um, elections as well. So just flag that in case I forget. Um, but in terms of the presidential election, I think if we've been following any of the debates, you know, the, the issue of criminal justice reform has come up in the debates. Um, and that's a good thing. I'm glad it's getting that attention that it needs um, and really the platform that it needs. I think in terms of when we talk about the, the impact of the presidency will have on criminal justice reform, there's several things. One is just the bully pulpit of the presidency, right? You, you're there, you're the president, you're kind of setting the priorities, you're setting the national uh, mood or tone. And if you're championing certain reforms or you're champion, championing, you know, reforming sentencing or letting people out that don't need to be there, um, that's a powerful position to have. Um, I would say, you know, 
not to get partisan, but you know, the president has, you know, made claims in terms of like his work on criminal justice reform. I, you know, whether or not you believe that it's a genuine place, um, you know, that's up to your interpretation. I may, I may have a whole different position. Um, so I think having a president who's really trying to champion the issue of criminal justice reform will be very impactful in terms of how we see it moving forward. Um, to, and, but doing, definitely want to highlight though, obviously the president isn't the person who is actually introducing and setting the bill. So your members of Congress, your House, your Senate members are actually doing that introduction. But I think having the role of the president being using their position and having being able to set national kind of standards and priorities um, is definitely something that that position can impact. Um, another way the presidency can impact criminal justice reform is with their clemency powers. Um, we see, you, you may have heard a little bit, I think with this president, I think he just a few days ago um, uh, commuted the sentences of, of, of a few people who are serving time, but um, really we saw this used during the Obama years. And so we had something called the Clemency Project 2014 and it was, it was very lucky um, I had joined NACDL in 2015, and so this was just getting started. And it was actually housed with, 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 within NACDL um, and, and several other partners, but within our organization, we kind of housed those staff members who were working on that. Um, and, and Obama, President Obama, what he did, he had made early on, he wanted to make sure he was using his clemency powers. And so he kind of made, um, set some standards in terms of what type of cases he wanted to review. Um, and what the project did and what was so powerful, it was able to link attorneys pro bono with people in the federal system who wanted to apply under this clemency project 2014 and i don't have the exact numbers but i know they released probably over a thousand i think um wow. individuals or community the sentence of over a thousand individuals so you're talking about people who um you know got time served so they could have been served a excessive sentence for a drug offense um, and so the president would have commuted their sentences and allowed them to be released early. And so I think that's a very, very powerful tool that the presidency can use. And it's impactful in terms of criminal justice reform because, um, you know, we're talking about people who are were often sentenced under very tough on crime drug policies. Um, and we are now getting to the realization that these policies, that we need to reform these policies, which is a good thing, but you still have people who are serving time under, you know, you know, uh, standards that were passed, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And so being able to kind of rectify those wrongs is a good way, um, is a way the pres president can do with their clemency powers. Um, and I think the third thing I would highlight the, that how the president can impact criminal justice reform is as we're seeing now with the Supreme Court nomination, right? You, they do make that recommendation. The Senate has to approve it, but the president makes that recommendation and we'll see how that will kind of, you know, outside of, there's other issues that the Supreme Court will take up, but in terms of criminal justice reform, any type of criminal um, cases that are brought to the attention of the Supreme Court. And one I'll highlight because it is something that um, we're kind of working on or kind of watching in terms of um, our work at NACDL, and that's the Roe Ro versus Wade decision. Um, and it may not at, at surface seem like a criminal case because we're not weighing in on the, the social aspect of whether or not you support or oppose abortion. That's not where we weigh in on. Um, but the impact it could have if, for say, Roe versus Wade is overturned, um, and now it's making it more difficult for women to seek these procedures, a lot of times there's criminal penalties attached to, attached to them. So we've seen states that are expanding laws to make it more let's say difficult, you know, to have it, the procedure or to make standards in terms of the procedure. And so a lot of times there could be criminal penalties attached to that. If you have an abortion after a certain time, there's criminal penalties that could be imposed on the doctor 
for performing it or anyone who's engaged in it. And so if we see that case getting overturned, you know, we could unfortunately see an uptick in criminal prosecutions as it relates to abortion. So that's um, some ways that specifically the president can impact criminal justice reform. And it's interesting because you, you, you just uh, noted that um, the, the case isn't a state case. It's an, it, the case will be heard in the Supreme Court <laughs> relative, in relatively short order, uh, especially after the new justice is confirmed and they will be confirmed. <laughs> uh, you know, they will be confirmed, but um, you talked about the federal courts, but you said if, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, then those are, are state laws that will then be executed, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, the kind of running theme of today is that, that all politics really is low and truly is local politics. It really is. And when you talked about the clemency power, something that resonated with me um, as a sports fan um, and as, as a native of the Hampton Roads area um, and a, a huge fan of Allen Iverson, if the governor of Virginia, Governor Wilder, who was the, first, the country's first black governor, had not pardoned Allen Iverson, um, he would have served 10 years in jail mm -hmm. and pretty much missed out on his entire NBA career. And so an elected official had a direct impact on whether or not he could become a student at Georgetown, a Hall of Famer, and, and, and do all of the wonderful things that he was able to do using his talent. But it wasn't a federal decision, it was a state decision. And what you just articulated is that it's, it, it's a trickle-down effect. Mm -hmm. So that though the president is, has the bully pulpit, it may not be the person to actually do the work, his decisions, his stance, um, and, or, her, or her stance, really does impact, in some instances, what goes on on the local level. It does. And we see that with even the tone of a lot, and this is outside of criminal justice, but even the tone of like race relations in America right now, we see that, right? The, the tone that is set at the top is really having that trickle down effect in terms of what people are, um, you know, individuals are doing and taking up arms and, and, you know, some of the rhetoric that we've seen in some of the debates that have been kind of disturbing and, and saying, you know, um, you know, yeah, what did he say? Like, you know, be on standby and stuff like that. So we do see that the rhetoric, I mean, the presidency in using their bully pulpit does have an influence. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that the governor, you know, that in that case, because I do want to talk about some of the, the impact that local elections have, because I think in terms of the direct everyday impact, it, the local elections are really important. Our state and local elections are really important. So it's even once we are, you know, voting at the presidency, making sure that you are paying attention to all of your down ballot races. And I know it's, it's different by county and different by state. Some states are electing governors, some are not. Um, but pay attention to all of the down ballot races and really, um, you know, educate yourself on who's running because those people are really going to, their decisions are going to have an impact on your day-to-day -day life. Um, and I think in terms of just like local elections and the impact on criminal justice reform, one, well, at the governor level, and you see that you highlight it in terms of the clemency, they have the clemency powers too for state-related state related cases. Um, and I will make it more specific even to COVID right now. And one of the things that we've been doing a lot is obviously seeking to decarcerate during the time of COVID because people who are incarcerated, I mean, you do not, you, you can't social distance in prison. You can't social distance in jail. You can't, you know, there's already issues of um, 
you know, you know, health concerns and, and, and you're just sanitary and making sure you have masks and, and washing hands. Those are things that are just not possible um, that the CDC is saying, you know, to help prevent the spread. And those things are just not possible during COVID um, and during COVID in prisons. And so a lot of groups, ours included, have been looking for ways of encouraging our states to decarcerate, encouraging governors to use their executive authority to, to, to reduce their prison populations because um, look, they're like little hotspots. You know, these prisons are little hotspots and it doesn't stay in the prison. You know, there's people who work in the prison, um, you know, the correctional officers, the, you know, nurses, everyone who works in the prison, they go home. And so if they are getting it, they are, if there's an outbreak in a prison um, or a prison's like a hotspot, um, they go home, you know, they go to their loved ones, they, you know, infect them, it's going to spread in the community. And so, you know, for me, I think it's a, you know, it's um, inhumane. That, that thank you. That's yes, what I was going to say. For me, it's a humanity is, issue. Yes, it's There's inhumane. no other reason you should yeah. let people go. But if that's not going to weigh, if that's not going to help you, at least know that it's going to spread in the surrounding community um, if you don't, if you ignore, you know, tackling this issue in, in our prisons. Um, unfortunately, I don't think, you know, governors are really utilizing their authority during this time. It, it's just, it's just what it is. Um, I think a lot, some are doing better than others, but really it hasn't been used. I don't think Virginia's governor is doing well at all. Uh, I'll just be honest, I live in Virginia and I, and I know, so he's not doing well at all in terms of using his authority to release people. Um, and we know that, that that is needed. We need to reduce the number of people. And it goes back to these tough on crime policies because a lot of times what we're seeing is a lot of people don't need to be there. A lot of the releases are saying, you know, people who are within one year of being released anyway. So they're going to get out anyway. Um, so go ahead and release them now and, and at least give them a fighting chance of not getting infected you know, people who have health conditions, you know, and dying, basically. And so this is really is a humanity issue. Um, and so we, we are not doing well. And I, I will say that I don't think our nation's governors are doing well in terms of using their authority. Um, some places are doing better than others. New Jersey just passed a law that will allow people to get public health emergency credits during this time. And so that's going to result into a lot of releases right after right around the election, I think. Um, so that's something positive. Um, but overall, we, we have to do a better job in terms of decarcerating um, our prisons during COVID. We are just creating little hotspots that are just going to continue to, yeah, continue to exist um, during this time. And as we see COVID, it's just not, it's not, it's not, it's going to be with us a little longer. So it's something that we need to do. You mean it won't just magically disappear? It will not just magically disappear. <laughs> you sure? Because that's what I was told. I was told it would disappear. Like, oh, it it'll is. be a miracle. <laughs> No, and I, yeah, and I think, and also kind of using Virginia as an example, just because we just wrapped up a special session and going back to talking about, you know, the impact that our elections have on COVID, well, not on COVID, on criminal justice reform. So this special session, and any, any session really, but this special session was specifically targeting the budget because of COVID, but also policing and criminal justice reform. Um, and there were certain things that came out that were very positive um, but I think that goes back to the people who, the people who you elect, right? And so we're talking, when we're talking about the impact of these down ballot races, um, Virginia had a kind of change in leadership, I'll say, just to keep it nonpartisan in terms of the makeup of our General Assembly. Um, and, and, you know, more younger, more progressive members were elected to the House and to the Senate, and we saw a change in leadership, and so we saw a change in priorities. We see a change in what's being introduced. We see a change in what's possible to get passed. And so when you're talking about, you know, the impact of these elections on 
for me, criminal justice reform, but whatever issue that's you know important to you, really looking at the stance of the people who are running, because they, again, these local elections, this is state, with the state and local elections are going to have an impact on your day-to-day life, more so even the federal elections. I'll give you one example. So one of the, there was a bill that was passed that would limit the um, ability to police, the, the ability of police to pull you over certain offenses. So like driving, um, I think driving without a headlight, driving mm-hmm. with like the extra, the, the tinted windows, you have like too much tint. Um, having a broken, t- you know, having the, your taillight out. Those are things that the police can stop you, stop you, pull you over for now. But with the passing of this bill and if the governor signs it, they would be limited. And that's just a few of the things, but they would be limited in what they can stop, pull you over for. And so that's that's a day-to-day thing, right? Yeah, that's, that's regular. That's with regular a stuff. broken taillight, you're like, okay, I just need to make it to Friday so I can get this fixed. You know, you hope you don't get pulled over. And you, you know, un- unfortunately you do get pulled over and you get, you know, have to go through that experience of being harassed by the police over a broken taillight. You know, we're we're talking about preventing preventing interactions with police, unnecessary interactions with police, right? So that we can mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. have these very um, high profile cases where people are just like going about their lives and unfortunately, you know, use their life. And so, what we can do to prevent unnecessary interactions is a positive thing. It's a racial justice issue, really. And so that's something very positive. Like you said, it's a day to day. You know, like un- you know, I've been pulled over having a broken tail. I was like, I'm just trying to make it till Friday so I can get it fixed. I mean, I know it's broken. You didn't tell me something I didn't know, but you know, so that's something that impacts your day-to-day life in terms of reform and even more so than some of the things that are being considered at the federal level. So um, making sure, yeah, not neglecting these down-ballot races because when we talk about like our everyday, um, you know, our everyday lives, these are really gonna have a, a greater impact. Man. What would you say is, um... So I'm going to weave in organization and then occupation. Mm-hmm. What would you say are some things that not just your organization, but um, the sororities, especially those within the Divine Nine, could start doing, if they're not already doing, that would um, aid in the efforts of the work that you're doing in your occupation? I think, I mean, a lot of it, I think in terms of some of the things that we can be doing um, in general, it can be just the, you know, voter outreach and education. Mm-hmm. I think kind of what, I mean, what you guys are doing is, is is great because it's just educating the voters when we talk about like why, you know, don't just vote for the president, make sure you get all the down ballot, all of the ballot measures. Um, so making sure people are aware, uh, making sure people have a plan to, to vote, right? If there's any type of, um, anything that's going on in their life that would make it difficult to either get out on election day or before making sure at least they have a plan offering rides to the polls if needed because that's something that could you know prevent people from going and voting um i would say up until up until the deadline obviously registering people i think is important and then making sure that people who may have a felony conviction know the process of getting their rights restored luckily in virginia it's not as it's not as difficult as it, it used to be when i used to do a lot of community work around restoration of voting rights, it still was like a 13 page application. Um, You know, you had to pay all your fines and fees before you can be considered. And it's still something that has to be, uh, it includes an action of the governor, but it's it's, it's gotten better, I will say. And so it's the application is is like one page, you don't have to pay all your fines and fees in order to get your rights restored. And so, but making sure that people are aware, sometimes, you know, these laws change year to year, the standards change and just being like, hey, did you know that now you don't have to have all your court, you know, court fees paid in order to to apply to get your rights restored. And someone can be like, I didn't know that, you know, because like 10 years ago you did. 
Um, and so making sure that people are aware and, and luckily people are doing that. And so I think those are some very and very nonpartisan things that obviously our organizations have to engage in nonpartisan work um, have can do uh, leading up to elections. But I think that voter education uh, and just really making sure people don't take the moment for granted, I would, I would think and I would hope you know, I would hope, I really would hope that people would understand, you know, can see the importance of it, but, you know, not even taking that, that moment for granted or taking the fact that people may just be feeling like, look, I don't like either one, either candidate, so I'm not going to vote. It doesn't matter. Like a non-vote is a vote, really. So you just need to, you just need to vote. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a hypothetical, right? Okay. The, 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 the truth and the facts around this scenario have been uh, scratched out to protect the innocent, okay? So someone has told me that I should not vote at all because if I vote for Biden, then I support his decisions and his thought process around the 94 crime bill. And that has been a detriment to my community especially as a black male in America. The racism of 45 mm -hmm. has been accepted, but because it's overt and it's out in the open, people can kind of deal with it because it's not like it's hidden. However, I shouldn't vote for him either. So I should just sit out and do absolutely nothing. But the reason that I'm going to sit out is because the 94 crime bill gave the uh, federal penitentiary system, you know, football numbers in terms of the population that then ensue as a result of the, of the, the matter. What do you say to that person that obviously cares about criminal justice reform, but does not trust the, the moral compass of either candidate? And that person says, I'm better suited to sit out then get behind one or the other. And this is your lane. So what do you say to that person? I would start off by saying one of the two is going to be the president. Um, and you have the decision of who, who that will be. And so sitting out isn't going to somehow magically have a third, you know, have a, a third option that come up or, or somehow neither one will be president. One of them will be president. Um, that's the first thing I would say. I totally understand the, the discomfort uh, oh, obviously, I understand discomfort around Trump being being erased, you know, racist, basically. But I definitely understand the discomfort around um, the support from the crime bill. I think, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, you know, I, you know, I, I probably wasn't a Clinton fan, you know, for some of the same reasons and some of the rhetoric, rhetoric that she said around, you know, super predators. I think that was, you know, very poor in terms of describing our young black men um, in that way. I think going back to 94 crime bill, though, Unfortunately, it, it was something that not only Biden, but a number of congressional Democrats supported. Um, and I think, you know, I think fortunately for us, there has been enough knowledge and change in terms of the mistake of that bill. Um, so that doesn't totally, excuse, you know, doesn't excuse his, his support for it. But I do believe that he has transitioned in terms of his understanding. A lot of, a lot of Dems back then had that same understanding in terms of needing to this, you know, tough on crime and needing to kind of incarcerate to make us safe. And I think the, the research and, and all of the studies that have transpired since then has totally counter, countered that earlier um, inter interactions in terms of you know, needing to put people in prison to keep everyone safe, right? And so we've seen this kind of ballooning of the, 
of our, of our um, prison system and how mass incarceration is impacting, um, impacting us and us by people of color, like black people, because it's us that's, that's in prison on um, disproportionately higher rates. And so I think that understanding has trend, you know, transitioned since the 94 crime bill. And so for that, I mean, if that's that, that person's, you know, hiccup with Biden, I would say, you know, just be encouraged that the, the studies have proven that to be wrong. And so that's not the mindset that people are going into in terms of criminal justice reform. Um, but again, going back to what I said first, one of the two will, one of the two will be president. And so sitting out or not, participating isn't kind of, um, yeah, isn't, isn't helping the, the, the circumstances. Either the current president will stay in president or we'll have a new president, but um, so one of the two will be president. I'll say it for you, Soror. Sitting out is asinine. It's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. If you decide to sit out this election, hey, man, you, don't, you get no airtime with me. Right. I can't I, talk to you. I can't, talk, I, can't, I can't be around you at all. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like I said, in some ways, a non-vote is a vote. You're just kind of, you're not choosing, you're not making the choice, but um, of who you're voting for, but it is, it is a vote in a way, if that makes sense. Because it's a lazy just, practice, though. It's lazy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's kind of a cop-out because you're, you're not making the difficult decision. You look, no candidate is perfect. That, that's, 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 that's the reality. No candidate is perfect. There were a huge, you know, on the dim side, they were like, a, it was a huge field. Um, I don't know, like over 20 candidates at yeah. one point, and you probably had your favorite, you know, top one, top two, or three, and maybe they didn't make it. Maybe Biden wasn't in the top five. And that was the case with me. I, oh, yeah. I waited until in the primary in Virginia, I literally waited until the last day to make up my mind who I was supporting because I just didn't know. It was going to be. <laughs> yeah, was gonna be I was like, man, it's too, the, you know, the, the, the dynamic, the spread was too wide for me. Yeah. <laughs> If I was a gambling man, the spread was way too wide for me, man. I, I need a sure bet. And so, you know, when when uh, the pandemic hit and I looked at all of the candidate pools, I'm like, man, who 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 has the medal <laughs> to at least try to make some rational decisions right. and decisions, good decisions for all people and just exactly. not one side or the other. And yeah. That's what really hit me because I'm like, man, this is this is impacting everybody right now. Yeah, and and so yeah, but like I said, one of one of the two will be elected, and maybe neither one was your top choice, but at least make the decision, make a decision, you know, and like yeah, make a decision basically. And I and that even goes back to, uh, you know, the importance of elections and criminal justice reform, and talking about some of the other down ballot measures. And so it's kind of funny because it came up at the last debate uh, when Trump was kind of hammering Biden in terms of like why they didn't get as much done. Um, as they may have wanted to. And then he finally was like, because we had a, you know, we had a, a one-sided Congress trying to keep it nonpartisan. We had a one-sided Congress, basically, that was like kind of obstructing our ability. And so that is very, very true. And so it's not just making sure that, oh, we've got our, you know, our, our candidate that's in the presidency. What does the Congress look like? Is the Congress going to support the presidency, the president and the policies they're trying to get through? Um, and if that's a no, then it doesn't matter. It, you know, Unfortunately, we saw that with yeah. Obama in terms of like what he was trying to do and running into a roadblock with his Congress. And so we need we need kind of everything to kind of line up. I'll just say that, you know, we need it all to kind of line up in order to actually see some progress. Unfortunately, we it's just a very hyper partisan environment um, in a very in a, in, a, in a very kind of negative way. So things just aren't getting done. People aren't talking. And so you know, until we can kind of break through that, we need it all to kind of line up in order to get the kind of 
change that we want to see. So I'm trying to keep it nonpartisan. But yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Doing a great job. Doing a great <laughs> you do a hell of a job. <laughs> you do a hell of a job because if, if I was in your seat, I, hey man, caution to the wind. <laughs> caution to the wind. So with that, what work do you have in front of you? Thinking about your role in the days ahead as we are making this march to the polls on November 3rd. November 3rd, yeah. Election day. As we're marching to the polls, we are drawing nigh to the D-Day. What work do you have that's, that's, that's present in front of you? And then after election day, what, what work are you facing? Oh, I mean, good question. I think the work in terms of leading up to the election is the same and kind of what I described in terms of what we can be doing as, um, you know, members of the Divine Nine, that's stuff kind of ongoing, making sure that people aren't taking, taking the election for granted, making sure people have a way to get to the polls, making sure people will vote, even if they have some, you know, hiccups in terms of the candidates. And so that stuff's going to be ongoing. Um, in terms of after, you know, after elections, it's just holding holding your elected officials accountable, um, really. And so, obviously, we'll 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 see what it what it looks like, what the what the presidency looks like, what the what the house, what the senate looks like. But regardless of who is in office and who kind of um, who wins, making sure they're accountable. If there are people who align with your beliefs, then making you know if they campaigned on, on things that you supported, making sure they actually follow through. And so it's like, okay, great, now you're elected. Um, so what about that, you know, what about that sentencing reform bill? Or what about, you know, making sure that we're releasing people from prison who don't need to be there? So holding them accountable if they, you know, if the person who won isn't in line with what you, what you believe, still communicating with them in terms of, of, in terms of what you do believe. And so if you're like, hey, I understand you, you know, you have a more tough on crime policy, but look, we're going to show you that your constituency actually wants you to have a more um, smarter on crime policies and, and, and reevaluate the, you know, how we're incarcerating people and the need for incarceration, the need for money bail. Um, and so I think that that's in terms of what people can do once the elections is over. Continue to work with your elected officials, hold them accountable, don't let them kind of skate by in term, you know, until the next election and then until they need your vote and then you hear from them, continue to engage them. A lot of them will have, um, you know, town halls or whatever, you know, whatever we're having now, virtual town halls in terms of um, to talk about their priorities and get the input from their constituents, participate in that. And I think that's something that we can do as the Rhinoid organization. So participate in these town halls, uh, participate when your, you know, county supervisor has a, you know, meet, meet, whatever, you know, coffee with me or virtual coffee with me, um, go to them when they're having their, you know, council meetings, have a presence there. So they know, okay, every time I go, I know that Zeta is going to be talking about, you know, X issue. I better, you know, I need, I need to have myself in a row because they're going to ask me questions about this. They know that you're going to show up. They know, they know that you're going to be speaking on whatever, you know, priorities are for your chapter. So making sure you have that president, not presence, but presence there um, and making sure they know who you are. So don't just don't show up once, you know, that's good, but try to have a sustained presence. And so they know who you are and they'd be like, oh, okay, Monica, you know, she's with the, this chapter and she's, you know, I know I'm gonna see her every, whatever, every second Tuesday at our council meetings, you know, or I know you, you know, put a system in place where you rotate people. And so you know that someone's gonna be there, but they know that someone from your organization is gonna be there and these are your priorities. And so when they're talking about this, they know, okay, let me, let me go, out, go ahead and get practically get the input 
of X group because they're engaged. They, they really believe in this. Let me get their opinion. But even before we talk about voting and crafting policies, that's where your influence really, um, you'll see your influence kind of really increase. And so, yeah, after elections, you know, just keep, keep at it, you know, make sure that your elected officials know who you are and show up, um, hold them accountable. Well, Brother Jay, what, uh, what Sora Reed has articulated so well, change requires work, man. <laughs> you know, the political process, like it's, it, it goes beyond the vote. 